Well, good morning. I'm curious, how many out-of-town family or friends are here this morning? Just slip your hand up real quick, all over. Quite a few. Welcome. Welcome to our church family. My name is David, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, some of the neat things that I get to do, teach, and be able to shepherd and just love on people. And I think it's one of the coolest things you could ever do. But I want to share some good news and bad news with you. Good news. You have 37 hours and 51 minutes left to figure out your New Year's resolutions. That's the good news. Bad news? It's not going to really matter anyway, because you're not going to succeed. In fact, 80% of you are going to fail by the second week of February. That's what the big dogs say. And only 8% of you are going to push through and actually see your resolution become success. How encouraging is that? So for some encouragement this morning, I thought that we would uh, take our encouragement from a four-year-old little girl named Laura. Let's listen to Laura. With New Year's resolutions, not because they often fail or because they're too difficult, and not because I'm bad at them either. I mean, I've only been alive for four new years. No, I have a problem with resolutions because people think that that's it, it's for one time to change. Now, don't get me wrong, we definitely all need change. I have no idea how to ride a bicycle and my little brother has no idea what a toilet is for. And some of you, yeah, you probably should get out of the house more, but one big decision probably isn't going to do it. Sorry. So now what? Flush your resolutions down the toilet for one my little brother can't use? Of course not. Keep your resolutions, but go easy on yourself. Will you change? Maybe, but probably won't happen in one big moment. It'll happen in the thousands of little moments. Every time you choose to forgive or slow down or be grateful or stay calm, each little moment that you choose what's right instead of what's easy, faith instead of doubt, Love instead of hate, that's where the change happens. Even if you fail one or two or thirty times, it's okay. You've got thousands of more little moments ahead of you. You'll get better. So, Happy New Year, God bless, and I'm off to ask my dad to get a bike, if they or a pony. Bye. Isn't that great? A thousand little moments. Here's a question to think about. What is the single most valuable moment that can be duplicated into a thousand little moments that has an indisputable guarantee to literally change your life forever? This past Friday night, 
uh, was watching Nightline, ABC. Dan Harris, who's one of the uh, co-anchors there on the program, was talking about something that he was doing the last couple of weeks. He started out in New York City, got on a coach tour bus, and literally went across the entire country proposing that people would adopt as a resolution an activity, a moment that, in his words, would make you 10% happier. Some of you may have seen that or are familiar with that. But it's interesting what he was recommending was to empty your mind of everything so that it processes no thing and supposedly that will make you 10% happier. Meditation. Well, I'd like to propose to you that there's another kind of meditation that actually doesn't empty your mind of everything, but specifically focuses and targets something very specific that can radically change your life. These verses that we're going to look at from God's word are probably not new to any of us, but I hope that they will grip you and bring change like never before. On the screen, if you don't have your Bible, and if you do have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm, the very first Psalm, Psalm 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3 together. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. The psalmist writes, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Another very well-known text in the Old Testament book of Joshua. Joshua has just assumed command of the Israeli people, the army specifically. Moses is gone. Joshua is overcome with anxiety, with fear. Very stressful position to take up. And God speaks to Joshua and encourages him to not be discouraged, but to take courage, to not fear. And then he says this to Joshua. If you have your Bible, you can flip over to chapter 1, verse 8, or it's up here on the screen in front of you. God says to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. The word of God the Bible. It's powerful. The Bible speaks about itself. One of my favorite texts about God's word and its power, its influence is Psalm 19. You can flip over there. 
Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11 say this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord, it's pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are true and all of them are righteous. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Word centered meditation. Do you realize that nowhere in the Bible does it command us as Jesus people to read the Bible? Every reference to your interaction personally with the scripture is to digest it, to meditate on it. A couple of weeks ago, um, went to Colorado with my oldest son. He was turning 20 years old, Andrew. He'll be here second service. And we were able to get up to the mountain and ski together for a few days. But we flew in. It was a late flight. It was the last flight from Nashville to Denver to DIA. Got to the airport, had to negotiate our way to the light rail, took the light rail to Union Station downtown Denver where my dad was going to pick us up. We got off the light rail in Union Station and making our way to the car, all of a sudden I realized that I had forgotten this. And I didn't quite know where it was. But I panicked because there were some important things in this computer bag satchel. So I ran back into the station, found one of the service folks there. I said, I think I may have left my bag on the light rail. I ran around the corner, and literally, as I'm running around the corner, the light rail is pulling out. For 45 minutes, I went through person after person who was not real interested in helping, begging them to help me find my satchel. Now, this satchel, it, it is actually pretty special to me. It's the first leather satchel that my kids have ever bought for me. So it has a lot of sentimental value to me. It represents my family. Inside my satchel, I had my iPad, I had my passport, I had checks to an investment account with five or six dollars in it. Um, I had some important things in it, but I want to share this with you. At the moment that I realized that I did not have possession of this satchel, I literally began to hyperventilate and became so anxious and so worried because my heart was devastated that I may have lost this. This as I shared several months ago in a brief way, is my journaling Bible. And in this Bible, for the last year and a half, are a thousand little moments of me and God. And they're written down. They're a record 
of memories where God has met with me and has communicated with me and I have responded out of my heart in writing down in that moment what God was telling me. And these moments now are perhaps the most important things in my life. In the last year and a half, God has radically changed me. And I was in a panic that I would not be able to recover these moments. Finally, God sent one kind man. He was a sergeant over the rest of the folks there. And he said, I'll tell you what. He said, I know who's driving that train. We'll get a hold of them. They were able to do that. We're about an hour in now. The person on that train walked all the way through the train and they could not find my satchel. I began to pray, God, please, please. I thought... Is it possible that I left it in the airport? Which I thought, if that's the case, there's no way I'm going to recover this. To finish the story, someone had found my satchel inside the lobby of the Marriott Hotel there that is just outside of the station where you get on the light rail and walk away or leave on the light rail. Someone had found it and turned it in to the little guardhouse there and they said, it's here, but if you'd like, we'll have it here until 2 o'clock tomorrow. I said, no, I'm coming right now. It was 1.30 in the morning at that time. I drove all the way back out, 45 minutes to that airport, talked to the man who had found my satchel, and when I got that in my hands, the first thing I did, I opened up my satchel. I didn't look for my passport, didn't look for the checks, didn't really care about my iPad. I looked to make sure that this was there. God's word, and to say it this way, God, through his word, has had a profound life-changing impact in my life. So I'd like to present to you this morning, if you want a title for this sermon, it would be A Thousand Little Moments with a subtitle, A Resolution for Word-Centered Meditation. What is meditation? And how do you do it? A professor of one of the seminaries that I did some work at, his name is Donald Whitney. He's written a, an excellent book, recommended to you. It's called Just Spiritual Disciplines. And in it, he says this about meditation. He says, meditation is not folding your arms, leaning back in your chair, and staring at the ceiling. That's daydreaming, not meditation. Daydreaming isn't always a waste of time. It can be a much-needed, well-deserved respite for the mind, as important as relaxation often is for the body. But our gracious Father is not always goading us to produce, and it is possible to daydream, to do nothing, and to do it to the glory of God. As opposed to daydreaming, wherein you let your mind wander, with meditation you focus your thoughts, he says. You give focused attention to the verse, the phrase, the word, or the teaching of scripture you have chosen, and then you contemplate it. You mull it over. Think about this with me. Do, do you know the actual literal etymology or definition of the word, our English word, meditate? It means to mutter or to mull. 
And one of the best illustrations to get this into our heads, kids, you'll understand this and appreciate this. How many of you have ever seen a cow before? When you leave today, just look out that way and you'll see one, right? Cows are very interesting creatures. Do you know what they do most of the day? They chew. They chew their cud. In fact, biologists tell us that they chew their cud approximately eight hours a day because they have two stomachs. They'll eat the grass, they'll chew on it for a while, and then they swallow it into one of four compartments or stomachs, and then they regurgitate that later in the day and chew on it some more. They say that there are over 40,000 jaw movements in the typical cow on any given day. They are mulling over their cud. Now, here's an excellent way to remember meditation. We'll use a mnemonic for this. What do cows do when they make sounds? Kids, what does it sound like? Right? Starts with an M and sounds like moo. What does meditate start with? An M. So cows moo. Christians meditate. And in a essence, that's exactly what God asks us to do with his words. To not just read it. It's not a duty. It's not a performance. It's not an expectation or some discipline that you have to work yourself through. It's a time where you sit and you take God's word and you just mutter. You mull. You chew. You meditate. The church father spoke of meditation as a little more technical, descending with the mind into the heart. Meditation engages the mind by focusing it on God's words. In the midst of a thousand concerns and thoughts, it directs our minds to stillness on God's word, where we begin to dialogue converse with him and enjoy his very presence. Like a centripetal force, church fathers said that meditating on scripture slowly pulls us inward to the center of intimate communion with God. When's the last time you experienced that? An intimate Authentic, genuine, loving moment with God. That's biblical, word-centered meditation. But how do you do it? To illustrate this, I'd like to help the kids a little bit and us big kids to understand this. Let's talk about what it's like and what it's not like. It's not like a workout, but it also is like a workout. How many of you work out? Raise your hand. How many of you are going to work out till the second week of February? Raise. <laughs> Most of us have probably got that one on the list, right? So those of you that work out, you know that usually when you go to the gym, you're going to have a gym bag with you. I'm going to call it workout accessories, Workout accessories are really important to be able to have a productive workout. For instance, if you ever show up at the gym and you're going to run on the treadmill and you forgot your tennis shoes and you got your boots on, 
your workout is going to be stressed. You will not enjoy it. It may not even be productive. Have you ever gotten to the gym and you forgot your shorts? You've got your jeans or your suit pants on. That is not an essential accessory for working out. You need shorts. Recently, I just bought, um, I, don't, I don't even know what it's called, this little thing you put on your left arm and it measures your heart, rate, your heart rate, your pulse, and you're supposed to get into your metabolic heart rate thing to be really specific to, for fat burning and all of that stuff. So I bought one of those, and now it has changed the way that I work out. It's no longer just run as fast as I can for as long as I can. I've actually learned that just going a little bit at a time and targeting heart rate, that I'm actually working smarter and it doesn't hurt near as bad. That's an essential workout accessory. Well, meditation is like that too. Meditation has what I'm gonna recommend as accessories that will enhance your meditation. But here's what meditation is not like. It's not like the workout that you're dreading like me every day to have to go to the gym and just gut my way through the workout. It's a duty, it's a discipline. No pain, no gain. I'm gonna just work really hard and I'm gonna just bust my way through this thinking there's some kind of a barter trade going on. If I do this, then this is going to happen. And some of us, we come to our devotional life, our quiet time, our alone time with God, our meditating with God, and we sometimes transfer the same concept. We think, well, this is something God has told me to do, so I gotta get it done. It's a behavior, it's a command, it's a, it's a rigorous duty, and it's almost like on this barter system. If I do this, if I get through and just bust through this reading, somehow God is gonna magic charm, bless me. So God, I did my 20 minutes today, bring it on. That's not meditation. So I wanna suggest to you what I'm gonna call the accessories of meditation, word-centered meditation. There are three S's and an M. And then if we get to it at the very end, there's a little footnote, C. Three S's, M, footnote, C. What are the three S's? Stillness, silence, and solitude. Stillness, silence, solitude. Psalm 46 quoted all the time. Be still and know that I am God. The context of Psalm 46, though, is in the middle of what are cataclysmic events. The earth is going through all kinds of cataclysmic weather events. There are wars taking place. People are dying. It is a tumultuous, fearful time on the earth. And God says to the nations of the earth and is reminding his own children, be still. In other words, stop trying. Stop striving. I have got this. Stillness. Silence. Exodus 14, fascinating passage. The Israelites have just been allowed to depart out of Egypt. 
and they're traveling across the desert and all of a sudden they get to the Red Sea. In the meantime, Pharaoh's changed his mind and all of his warriors are pursuing the Israelites. And the Israelites look behind them and they see these warriors coming to kill them. They look in front at the Red Sea. There's no passable way. And they start doing this. Yak, 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 yipe, yipe, yipe. Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt to this? We were better off as slaves back there. And all of a sudden, God says to Moses, you tell my people to stand firm and be silent. Stop yakking. Stop talking. Because in the moment where we can't, God says, I can. Stillness, silence, solitude. Lonely. Literally means to be alone. Jesus himself, Luke tells us in chapter five, that Jesus often intentionally on purpose left his disciples to go into a place of aloneness where he would meet with his father. No one else around. I want to share with you that in the last year and a half since I've had this, the Lord has allowed me to begin to implement these accessories of stillness, silence, and solitude. But may I share with you, and just as a little bit of a a warning, In the beginning, it was not easy. This past week, I found an article, never read it before. I was fascinated to realize that it's actually a pastor associate of mine, an acquaintance. I know this guy. And I read this article, and I began to weep. Yesterday afternoon in the kitchen, I went because I was excited about this article. So I went and I started to try to read it to Tammy, my wife. I tried two times and spontaneously each time. I just started crying. Because I don't know that I've ever read anything that so mirrored my own experience. So I'm going to read a portion of this to you. And here's what I want you to hear. Somebody else wrote this. But I'm telling you, I wrote this. These are my words. This is my experience. This is my heart. My prayer is that this will be someone here, your experience. And to realize you are not alone in the sense of a struggle without hope. But you can go to the place of aloneness to find your hope. Here's what he says. It's entitled, Four Reasons Every Pastor Needs Silence. Again, not my words, but these are my words. I've spent most of my adult life hating silence, but didn't know it. It was a major blind spot. I dismissed my constant desire to be with people as merely being extroverted, and attributed my talkative nature to my heightened relational instincts. These qualities appeared to help my pastoral interactions with people, so I thought nothing of it. It wasn't until I began my own journey through counseling out of a personal crisis of brokenness that I was confronted with this long-held deception. My counselor observed some behavior in my life that went unnoticed by most, but became flags of concern for him. I ran from being alone. I was uncomfortable with silence. I often dominated conversations. This exposed my terrible listening skills, which the counselor was wise enough to connect to the silence issues. 
He pressed me in this area, and it was difficult. It led to an implosion of my soul. But it began a desperately needed process of healing. Through this personal discovery, the Lord taught me four lessons about the value of silence. One, silence exposes the soul. If emotions are the gateway to the soul, then silence exposes it. I wasn't ready to face the ugly things that got exposed. But God in his grace met me in a powerful way, and my journey has brought newfound peace to my soul. It was through silence in a quiet place, meditating on truth, and prayerfully asking for God's help that I experienced this level of grace and presence that I had not known. Meditation engages the mind with God's revealed truth in order to inflame the heart with affections towards God and transform the life unto obedience. Two, silence confronts the voices. These voices are voices from those across the span of our life that speak things the enemy loves to whisper again and again in our ears. When those voices are harsh, abusive, and lie about our value and identity in Christ, they're unpleasant, and we run from them. These voices tormented me. Abusive voices from my past, lies from the enemy, and painful words of criticism all created these messages of failure and self-loathing. They were especially loud when I was alone. So to escape from the voices, I ran from silence. But I needed silence to confront those voices, to counter the lies I'd long believed with gospel truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones famously addressed these voices in the context of depression. Here's what he said. The main trouble is that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you were listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Silence allows us to confront the reality that when we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves, we often hear harsh, soul-crushing words, and we run. Three, silence teaches us to listen. I was deeply troubled to learn that I had been a pastor for so long and it remained a poor listener. Sure, I listened, but it was mostly to prepare a response. I needed to learn to listen without needing to respond, just to listen and to empathize, to feel. As I embraced silence, I realized I was learning to listen. I heard sounds around me I'd never noticed before. I felt more receptive to God's word. It's amazing what happens when you're not preoccupied with trying to figure out what to say or do next. Lastly, silence tests our need for noise. I had no idea I needed noise whenever my soul was tormented in silence. Silence exposes the soul and tests how much we've come to depend on noise to block out our pain. This is one of the many reasons we all need blocks of time away from our phone, email, social media, every electronic device that creates the constant source of noise. We don't have to make much effort to find noise and distraction, but silence is another matter. We must fight for it. Meditation, accessorized with stillness, silence, and solitude, challenges us to face our pain and to allow the gospel to penetrate deep into our souls, where we find peace, healing for our noisy, restless soul. So, embrace the three S's as you meditate. 
M. Three S's and M, footnote C. M, micro pen. It's a specialty pen with a tiny little tip that will capture a thousand little moments between you and God. If you look at the next slide, I have a picture of what happens many days between me and God. This, this is this right here, my Bible. I took this yesterday. I usually wait till no one's around. In the wintertime, I'll sit by the fireplace, I get my Bible out, and I have a micro pen. And if you're wanting just step by step how this works, I, this is just how I do it. You, you come up with however you wanna do it. But incorporating the three S's of stillness, silence, solitude, and a micro pen, take your Bible, get alone. Just be alone. It's okay, it won't hurt. Get quiet, like literally, like shut up. Like don't first think, dear God, pray for this, 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 thank you for your word, blah, 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 amen, and then leave. Just be quiet. I usually try to take two, three minutes, I sit there and I just, I, I take deep breaths and I just breathe. I'm not trying to empty my mind of, of everything, I'm just wanting to be able to focus on something. I then take a passage of scripture and sometimes it literally is one verse and I just slowly read it and then I pause and then I reread and then I listen because these are God's words. God's talking to me and it's awesome. And then I begin to meditate and then something fascinating takes place. It's what some people call prayer. I just call it writing what's in my heart. I take my pen and I just start writing. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Nobody checks it. As far as I know, nobody reads it. I don't care if you do. And I just write in response to what God has talked to me about in my soul through his word. And then when I'm all finished, I sit there and I look at it and then just my discipline, I, I take my Bible and sometimes I'll stand and I'll, I'll sometimes walk out to the deck and I'll be outside and then I read aloud to my Lord what I've just written. I can't tell you what it's done for me. By the way, if you go back to the last slide, the footnote C, there's an emblazoned coffee cup <laughs> with coffee in it. Funny thing, when I started journaling for the first time in my life, I started drinking coffee, and I love it. It's a gift from God, I think. <laughs> and I just love the thought of holding a warm coffee mug and sitting there in stillness and silence and solitude with my micro pen, listening and responding to God. So what are your resolutions for this year? May I, may I entice you? May I challenge you? May I double dog dare you? May I just encourage you? May I just invite you propositionally to first ask God to give you the desire for this and then in a clumsy way, however you end up doing it, say, God, I want to meditate on your word. I want to meet you. I want to know you. I want you, God. So many Christians 
never personally interact with this gift that God has given to us. So last night I went to Lifeway and I cleaned out their Bible section. Over here on the right-hand side, there are 45 journaling Bibles right there. If you were interested in making good right now, to start by just getting a Bible that in the margins of the Bible, when it's not written in, here's what it looks like. It's just nice and wide and open. This very Bible is over there. These Bibles, it was amazing last night. God was kind. I'm walking around. I said, I want to buy basically every journaling Bible you've got. So I was walking around. They gave me a cart, and I'm rolling around a cart, going through the aisles, picking out the journaling Bibles, and I, I overheard one of the teenage workers there. She was whispering to the coworker and said, that poor man, does he not know he doesn't have to put all those away? And then she said, oh, no, no, no. He's buying them. And she said, What? <laughs> So there are 45 Bibles here. Many of them have been discounted 30%, plus they gave another 50% off of that. So the most expensive Bible here that was typically $70, $75, there's no Bible here that's over $30. There's one Bible for the first person who gets to James after the service, you're lucky you're here at the first service, that's absolutely free. It's sitting on top. There are different kinds. There are different translations. I have NIV, ESV, Christian Holman Standard, and New King James. Those were all the journaling Bibles that they had. I also have, where is it? A micro pen. It will not bleed through the pages of your Bible. It's a fine tip to capture those thousand little moments with God. So James will be here between now and the next service. Come quickly. If you'd like, just write a check for whatever the cost is. Make it to the church. And please, in the memo line, just put Bible so we know what it is. Or if you have cash, that's fine. These are at cost. They're $3.50 for a special micro pen. You'll have to make the coffee yourself. <laughs> so here's to a thousand little moments in silence, stillness, and solitude with your pen and your Bible to meet with God. As a prayer of petition, would you join me to quote with me and say Psalm 19, verse 14, the very last one. It's going to be on the screen. Let's say this together, and we'll close. Let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen? Amen. God bless you.